right, welcome everyone to this latest edition of the Positive Populist podcast. My guest today is Ryan Williams. He is president of the Claremont Institute and publisher of the Claremont Review of Books. First question, Ryan, are you a positive populist? Uh, sure, Steve, uh, with one caveat, I guess. Uh, I always like to tell people populism uh, in America is... Uh, an easier thing to subscribe to than elsewhere because I, I think that populism in America has always been rooted in uh, the American theory of government, which is that the sovereignty of the people rule, uh -huh. uh, but the sovereignty of the people in America have always ruled within a framework of the protection for minority rights. So populism is uh, safeguarded by the Declaration and the Constitution. So when you, it's interesting because you immediately went to, I think, the core idea, yeah. certainly the one that, that I believe in, what seems to come out in all of these conversations, mm -hmm. which is that notion of power, you know, sort of more uh, more political language, power to the people, people right. power, something around that. Right. But what I was really interested in the answer um, was your historical reference. Yeah. You know, you said, you, you, I think you said, has always been. Yeah. I'd love to hear you talk about that a bit more sure. in terms of because a lot of people think, oh, this is a new thing. Mm -hmm. Populism, this, it came in with Trump. Yeah. And I guess Bernie Sanders on the left. Right. Although we've had an interesting <laughs> conversation about, I think it was with Tammy Bruce, who was really clear about, you can't be a populist on the left because the left believe in taking power away from people. Uh -huh. So it's literally impossible. <laughs> anyway, that's a, a digression. Yeah. I'd love your take then about what, what's behind that when you say it's always been the historical tradition. Well, I... I um people get worried about the term populism in American politics because they trace it back to the late 19th century and mm -hmm. the turn of the century and the populist party and the famous line from William Jennings Bryan was whatever the people are for I'm for and this makes, right. this makes small r Republicans nervous because the people could be for bad things and not just good things so what what I mean by populism in America being having a deep strain it's just that we're a popular government we always were a government based on the authority of the people and the sovereignty of the people uh, translating that that sovereignty through the, the institutions so that they could govern in a small r Republican fashion so populism I think at its at its worst or at its most um, malleable would just be whatever the people are for. I'm so for. basically some sort of giant version of an opinion poll. Right. Where you say, right, this is what people want. I know and... that's not what you mean by it. It's not no, what I mean but by I, it. Yeah. And another phrase <clears throat> that you hear a lot associated with that type of populism is rule of the mob. Right. You hear that a lot, don't mm -hmm. you? But let's go back to the historical thing. So because, I mean, maybe, maybe some people know this, um, maybe others don't, so I'd love to make sure that we cover everyone. Sure. The, the Populist Party, uh -huh. what was the story there? What was that about? Well, it grew out of the really the um, the farming community that was... Uh, so what year are we talking? So we're talking the, pop, the first populist, or really the Grange Party was this um, popular party based in farmers who were upset with banks. The Grange? The Grange Party, the, the lack of credit, uh, and that evolved into a people's party. So just to, I'm being very ignorant sure, now, but no, the Grange, was, did that refer to something... It wasn't someone's name. Or no, was no. It, no, no. It referred specifically to the agricultural. Yeah, I, I forget the actual, the exact etymology of the Grange movement, but it was very much a farmers-based movement, uh -huh. fed up with the banking system of the East and the lack of credit for for so farmers. The, what year was this? So the the it, it quickly morphed into the People's Party, which I, I think the first People's Conference was maybe in 1880. It's been okay. a while since I've run right. through the history. It's around Lincoln's time. Uh, 20 years after. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So oh, 80, the, you said yeah, 80, 80, not 60. Yeah, 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 exactly. 60. So after yeah. the... Right, got it. Really, um, the start of the Gilded Age, as it was called. Later. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So the, this this period b um, between um, sort of the um, 
progressivism going really national, which would be in 1912 probably uh, uh-huh. and and after the Civil War. So between the Civil War and the ascent of So that's the first time we see... A real people's so what, party, yeah. Right. And Or a populist party. So how did they relate? So the Grange and then the People's Party was established as a party. Mm-hmm. And who was there? Is that William William Jennings Bryan? He ran... Uh, he ran under the populist ticket, yeah, and then. But later, is it, at that time it was called the later People's the, Party, right? Not the populist, or was it the people? Well, the populist party, yeah. Right. Right. And how did they see themselves in relation to the other bits of the political map at the time? Um, they were um, they were a little uncategorizable. I mean, they 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 would later morph into the Progressive Party. Um, uh-huh. And which would then be absorbed by the Democratic Party, but they wanted um, easier credit for small farmers. They wanted uh, uh, postal savings banks, which was a progressive reform policy reform taken up both by the progressive Republicans, uh, so-called Teddy Roosevelt and, and then William Howard Taft, uh, but also the populists. So there was this bipartisan sense that mm-hmm. the old elite establishment. Uh, was was not serving all the people properly. So, very, so there was actually really reforms. pretty similar to yeah. to the kind of feeling yeah. today, where you've got the coastal the sense that mm-hmm. the coastal elites are not are not listening to and not representing those who live in the heartland, who live in indus- who work in industries that may not right. be the ones that those in the coasts work. I mean, today we see that divide in terms mm-hmm. of what's described as the knowledge economy right. versus manufacturing. So back in the day, that was kind of agriculture versus finance was that yeah, the kind the, of distinction the eastern bankers and then the i mean out west there was also the the sort of mining community uh-huh. so flyover country back then if we can put it that yeah, way yeah. were the sort of the mining west and the agricultural south and then and the middle of the country as well Interesting. so the, the big disjunction being the the commercial folks who brought uh, livestock and stuff to market versus the people actually supplying the livestock oh, and growing it yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or doing the mining and bringing the ore to market and then the, the other class were the financiers and the middlemen the and so that class. went and so it's interesting the left right thing so that went in the direction I mean what would just in, in your opinion yeah. did that end up that movement going too far in a, in a in a leftward centralizing big government direction uh, maybe they did i mean part of that they did call for the nationalization of the railroads that was part mm-hmm. of the, the so I, w- I would say that's probably a bridge too far they also had this um tendency that all democrat small d democratic movements have which is to devalue money to make uh, creditors to make it a more favorable climate for debtors mm-hmm. Uh, rather than creditors. So mm-hmm. if you have a lot of farmers who are deeply in debt for various reasons, uh, it's always tempting to transfer wealth right. surreptitiously from the people who hold that debt to the debtors by devaluing the currency. So there was an aspect of that as well. Okay. So then let's just come up to date. So how do you see what's been going on since the term became popularized in the last few years? Yeah, I think um, – uh, Two ways to think about it, at least. Um, my colleague Angelo Cotavilla has talked about it as the ruling class versus the country class, mm-hmm. kind of an old with an old UK flavor in certain right. sense. Um, and then my my colleague Charles Kessler has talked about it in terms of two constitutions. So mm-hmm. the the, um, the populists, whether it be the Tea Party or the Trumpian uh, evolution of that, were kind of want to return to the old constitution, the constitution of individual rights mm-hmm. um, and a large thriving middle class. Uh, whereas the the new constitution or the living constitution uh, has a new new view of rights uh, 
and the modern modern progressives and liberals in the Democratic Party have embraced that. So it's it's the notion that um, not individual rights held by individuals, but rather group rights or evolving rights or mm-hmm. and the big the biggest distinction I think relevant um, to um, our list or your listeners. Mm-hmm. Are, you know, the the new living constitution really means government needs to be unlimited because mm-hmm. rights are ever changing. And the only way to make us all prosperous is to give government and especially scientific management and government the opportunity to endlessly create new rights and distribute new resources. I, I, there's so much interesting there to unpack. Um, one phrase that really leapt out was that that notion of the scientific management. Yeah. That reminds me of something I found really interesting when looking at the history of the concentration of economic power mm. and the way that big corporations have been allowed to get bigger and bigger and bigger and in many cases squeeze out upstarts and 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 um and smaller companies and those seeking to challenge them and when you look into that that philosophy of allowing and encouraging that actually mm-hmm. which has sort of taken over the the legal aspect and the kind of the doctrine of consumer welfare in, in competition, antitrust policy, which means that, well, as long as prices are low, it doesn't matter if these companies are getting bigger and bigger. One of the origin originators of all of that was actually J.K. Galbraith, mm-hmm. the left-wing economist who, who, was, who's, who made that exact argument about, well, these benevolent big corporations through management theory will end up producing the best result. Mm. And so we should be encouraged that because it means that you'll end up with better outcomes if you've got these centralized uh, repositories of knowledge. It goes directly opposite to the kind of decentralizing, I guess this would be, you know, you'd go in a more libertarian direction, the Hayekian, you know, the minute you centralize power too much, you're on the road to serfdom, yeah. as Hayek's book. Right, and he, he talks more about governmental power. Um, but I think uh, we have a review in the n- magazine coming up which investigates this Hayekian question, but they uh-huh. say one of his blind spots was he didn't apply this to corporate power. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so okay, government. So I think you're exactly right. That's in so that. interesting, that yeah. interplay. All right, so let's go to the um, the, the, the question of, of how this relates to conservatism i've always been mm-hmm. so interested in that in that tension how do you see that um well i think um it's a good question uh and it, it actually involves a, a split in the republican party at the mm-hmm. turn of the 20th century so both teddy roosevelt and william howard taft were big into using antitrust to break up large corporations mm-hmm. taft's focus was no look we use the law uh, and we use it to promote competition. So mm-hmm. anti-competitive practices we have to go after. Mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt had much more of a, um, uh, I don't want to call it populist, but much more of a Rooseveltian solution, which is, no, 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 we just need to pick a big, a couple of the big ones, make an example out of them, right. and we can find some arrangement with the others. Oh, so one was a kind of rule of law focus, the other was much more of a PR operation. That's and such a, an interesting take on that. I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah. As far as modern conservatism goes... Because I've always taken that superficial... Oh, Teddy Roosevelt, great. He was... Uh, Trust-busting Teddy. That's right, yeah. 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 Uh, his successor actually... So you're saying it's less less sort of intellectually coherent or based, rooted in principle. Yeah. And, and Taft, Taft, who was a lawyer by heart, wanted to go after it much more methodically and actually mm-hmm. prosecuted more antitrust cases, uh-huh. but did it more boring. What about Brandeis? So he comes up, a lot of the... Especially the people on the... Those on the left right mm-hmm. now who are arguing the, the kind of pro 
tougher antitrust yeah. policy. I, mean, I, I agree with that impulse. They they go back to Brandeis and they say he he he's really the kind of intellectual father of a lot of a lot of this. Yeah, well, he was. I mean, he was more on the judicial side, which which Taft would be later. But yeah, I mean, he's certainly in in play. Yeah, but but, but do you look approvingly on that kind of Brandeisian? No, I think Brand- a lot of people. Oh no, he's he's on the left. That's no good. Yeah, no, I think Brandeis has many jurisprudential problems other than just antitrust. Um, right. I think he he fundamentally viewed the Constitution as something other than what the founders intended. Uh-huh. So, I, I part ways with him. As for modern conservatism, I think one of the big blind spots, um, and this has to do with the kind of libertarianization of the right over the last thirty years, mm-hmm. has been just a dogmatic attachment to no, 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 antitrust. You can't do that. It's all about economies of scale. It's all about lowering prices. Yeah. Um, Microsoft being huge, Google being huge, that's fine. They're providing wonderful services. People, yes. people want it. We don't have to worry about the corporate power problem. Um, and I think a little more nuance on that question is needed. I think Trump understood that instinctually. Mm-hmm. Some people around him do. Um, I think we're just trying, starting to figure out what that might mean, especially with regards to our big, big tech platforms and their ability to censor speech mm-hmm. and editorial and exercise real editorial control Yes, uh, while claiming to be neutral platforms. You know, I agree with that, yeah. but I always want to make the point that it's not just in tech. Sure. I, it's it's easiest, I think, for conservatives mm-hmm. to, to go after the yeah. tech concentration you know the of power and, the, yeah. and monopoly there because precisely because of this political role right. or the speech role but actually when you look at the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. or insurance or whatever all these other sectors of the economy yeah. are also much more concentrated and there it may not be so immediately evident that uh, how damaging that is because they're not literally affecting mm-hmm. the information and our conversations on the culture yeah. but they you know they hurt there's an impact on employees for example sure. if you've got workers who have less choice of workplace because industries are becoming so concentrated mm-hmm. their power their power relative to the worker is greater yeah and i think it dovetails nicely with the rise of populism and trumpism and even bernieism or sandersism right. uh, because since mid-century in america as you've had a large federal establishment grow a large bureaucracy grow there's been a nice symbiotic relationship between big business who can afford mm-hmm. the regulatory costs mm-hmm. and capture and help guide policy that then affects them yes so it's really this weird unholy alliance between the yeah the bureaucracy the lawyers in washington and the largest firms carving out their pieces and their their right. success when you know the, the middle class and the small business owner suffers. so the thing i'm interested in that is that this whole language and this way of thinking feels very natural to just listening to you speak it just mm-hmm. it feels like you don't sound like someone who's i don't know let me just use cliches here kind of establishment republican <laughs> who's kind of trying to come to terms with all of this it feels like you really this is rooted in something deep with you and i just wanted to, to ask you to talk a little bit about claremont sure and your your relationship to Claremont, how Claremont got going, I think mm-hmm. that'll be fascinating to hear about. Yeah, so the Claremont Institute will be 40 years, turns 40 this year, mm-hmm. uh, was founded by some graduate students at the Claremont Graduate University who were all really students of Harry Jaffa in one way or another, a great Lincoln scholar now now dead. But they decided they didn't really want to go into academia. They, uh, they weren't averse to academia, but they thought in the waning years of the Carter administration, they hoped the waning years, right. uh, as he was fighting for re-election against Re- uh, what, soon against Reagan, they thought, you know, let's go out and try to convince our fellow citizens uh, and our fellow conservatives about what they should be for. They're, we're pretty sure they all know what they're against abroad, which is communism, the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. uh, what they're, they're generally against at home is communism at home and unlimited government. 
but they really don't know the outlines of what they should be for. Mm -hmm. So they thought that the conservative movement's touchstone should be the principles of the American founding and their um, completion in a way by Abraham Lincoln, uh, Abraham Lincoln's talk of the Declaration of Independence. So that became, that was our mission. Our mission is to restore those principles uh, to their rightful and preeminent place um, in national life. And what we do to do that is we teach. But when, just before yeah. we move on from the, the founding there, what, why did they feel that was necessary? I mean, at that time, so we were talking about late 70s. 79, yeah. Did you have, well, maybe you didn't, maybe, I, I don't know the history of this, did you have, I don't know, these kind of famous bastions of this country, do you have the AEI or the um, uh, Heritage Foundation or Cato, more libertarian, but did you have organizations on the right that were on a similar sort of page? Um why did they feel that they needed to right. make well, this argument? <clears throat> well, AI had been around for a long time. I think it was founded in the 40s. Um, but it was kind of a bipartisan policy shop. Oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, in some ways, I mean, I, I, they le- leaned libertarian. but uh, And then the Heritage Foundation, I think, was founded in 1977. So it was very new as well. Uh-huh. And we've done partnerships with Heritage over the years. But we thought there that our niche... And just to be clear, they, they were... Um, uh, is it as simple as they were East Coast and Claremont was West Coast? In a way, based. in a way, I mean, Heritage, uh, uh, Ed Fulner and Paul Weyrich founded it, but and they 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 were frustrated when they went to somebody. They were staffers, and they saw this great AI report, and they said, "Why, why didn't you give that to us? It could have helped us." sway votes on the hill and the AEI scholars response maybe it was even the president at the time said oh we would never want to influence legislation (laughs) (laughs) so they thought this is a market we need to address so they wanted to be policy advocates well our what we always thought was ideas were upstream from policy in a way Mm -hmm. and more important Mm -hmm. so to get those fundamentals right required a focus and so our focus had always been the principles i mean we were we'd we never shy away from general talking generally about policy, mm-hmm. but our day-to-day work has never been applied policy. So, do you use the word conservative to describe Claremont? Um, yeah, I mean, we we've we certainly grew up in the conservative intellectual movement that uh, you know was kind of launched in a way at mid-century and gained a lot of steam up through the Reagan years. We were born right before the Reagan years, so to speak. Um, but I, I think you know, conservative has always been a a confusing term uh, to people. And the conservative movement has always been confused what conservatism in the United States should be about. Mm-hmm. So, um, our our what we thought was the you know the the salvation of the West depends on America, and the West is definitely in crisis. The mm-hmm. salvation of America depends on the American right. The American right, in a way, depends on the Republican Party, and that Republican Party to do good things has to un- properly understand what conservatism is. Right. And our point was, it's not conservatism is not Hayekian gradualism. It's not traditionalism uh, from Burke. Uh, it's this distinctively American thing. Yeah. Which in a way is conservative, but at the same time, l- l- small l liberal and revolutionary in a way, because the Declaration of Independence was was not a small c conservative document. I mean, it was a claim to universal rights uh-huh. and the overthrow of a government, which is kind of a radical thing to do. Yeah. Okay. So, Interesting. Yeah. Okay. When Trump appears on the scene, mm-hmm. and certainly this was my observation, just looking at, at the Claremont Review of Books, and so mm-hmm. you know, it just felt like you and your organization was was kind of tr- Trump friendly, I mm-hmm. guess. You, I'm sure you wouldn't. Well, maybe I'll ask you. I'll ask you, Ron. Sure. Up. Do you? I mean, um, you know, call yourselves a Trump-supporting organization, or but you certainly felt open in a way that these other 
places didn't. Yeah, I think you know it partly had to do. We're all the way out here in California, so it we're by geography a little less prone to the group think of the mm-hmm. beltway. Mm-hmm. That helps. Um, we've always made a conscious decision to stay out here. But I think also uh, the way that Trump was um, seemed to be pulling together a real popular electoral coalition mm-hmm. that was aimed for the rule of law and against the sort of soulless bureaucratic administrative state mm-hmm. and for middle America and uh, for secure borders um, and for, um, for in a way, uh, economic policy and a trade policy that looked after the middle class and, and a return to sanity in foreign mm-hmm. policy, which had been slightly overtaken by millenarian or utopian goals, uh, whether it be a Wilsonian left or the neoconservative right. Right. W- w- those, I mean, we've been arguing against, we, we had no huge problem with the initial decision to go into Iraq, but as soon as it changed into a democracy project, we'd been writing against it in the magazine since right. The, right. basically the beginning. Um, so we had been a little heterodox on foreign policies. Uh, yeah. So that that was an easy one for us. And we'd always been against the large administrative state. That was easy for us. On trade, we, we didn't really have very many settled views. I mean, we were Reagan free traders, I suppose, mm-hmm. but, but perfectly willing to understand the need uh, to recognize that policies are not principles mm-hmm. and policies need to change sometimes. Right. And there's nothing. So not dogmatic. Right. And yeah. there's, and you know, as, as Charles Kessler wrote years, a couple years ago, you know, Trump in a way is returning the Republican Party to its roots. Uh-huh. You know, in the 1880s, the Republican Party was sort of pro-assimilationist on immigration, kind of closed borders, um, pro-tariff to look after American uh-huh. workers, um, and uh, and slightly more um, modest in its Is there a particular policies. essay that people should, or piece that people should look at from Charles that... Yeah, the re- it's called The Republican Trump. Interesting. And written, I think, in the spring. Just of quickly mention your the website where people. Yeah, can... people can find all this stuff at www.claremont.org. Uh-huh. And slash CRB is the magazine's subsection, but right. Claremont.org. Is so the Republican Trump was. When was that? I think he published it in the spring of 2017. Right. Yeah. And what were some of the other pieces that I think? Just talk about some of the other ways you've you've, yeah. you've responded to this. Right. Sure. I um I wrote a. I mean, I've, I wrote on Trump's first inaugural for Fox News, um, but uh, Charles Kessler and William Vogley both uh, have written for the magazine quite a bit on Trump. Bill's launching piece is, it was called Why I'm Anti-Anti-Trump, and that was right. in the spring of 16. Uh-huh. But the biggest the biggest one that made the biggest impact was Michael Anton's published mm-hmm. pseudonymously at the time of the Flight 93 election, was kind of, yes. which was a more polemical, uh, um, you know, um, clarion call for... Trump's not that bad. In fact, he might be the best option. And let's get over ourselves and see if we can't uh, so make was, America that, great I remember again. that. When was that? <laughs> that was published right after Labor Day in 2016. Right. And then Rush Limbaugh read it on the air, crashed our website, and the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And what what was it? I mean, you're the president. Yeah. And you're the, I mean, was it on you? Did you get that? But did you commission that? How did it work? My my predecessor, Michael Pack, was president at the time. I oh, took okay. over the September 17. Right. Uh, but I was there as COO and had been there for many years. Um, well, Mike had, uh, Mike, as he reminds everyone, had written a piece a few months prior uh, that we had rejected. We thought it was a little too hot. Um, right. And he pu- ended up publishing it somewhere else. But then he and a, he and some friends started this this blog called the Journal of American Greatness. Right. And they that lasted for four months into this early summer. Uh, and then we saw him at the American Political Science Association, and he basically spent four days just writing this thing, submitted to submitted it to us. Right. We did a quick edit and decided 
uh, it was the right time and the right piece. Yeah. Uh, but it really, the, 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 I mean, Mike wrote it and was really the energy behind it. And, uh, Charles Kessler signed off on it. Right. So I, I'm glad both of them did Great. both those things. Yeah. And then tell us about your sort of entry into this world. How, mm-hmm. How's, have you well, got to, to yeah, this point? Yeah, my, um, well, I went to Hillsdale College right when Larry oh, Arn, wow. right when Larry Arn started as president. That's it's assumed a kind of mythic proportion in my, in my mind, you know, because yeah. I I remember reading a most brilliant, very short piece actually. Well, no, it's an extract. That that's right in the Wall Street Journal from a speech he'd given or mm-hmm. you know written a piece or something. That's the first time I came across Larry Arn. Yeah. I think he's so interesting. Well, he's one of the founding founders of the Claremont Institute and uh-huh. ran the institute from 1985 to 2000 right. then went to Hillsdale and took it over and that's when I went to Hillsdale uh-huh. so that was so my first real exposure to the magazine to the institute because it was laying around the political science right. offices at Hillsdale uh, and then I did one of our summer fellowship programs our being the Claremont Institute mm-hmm. right after I graduated right and then came out for graduate school a year later and started working part-time while in graduate school wow and um a few years later was running our fellowship programs a few years so after you've been that. there for you know you've worked your way Since up 2005 been... yeah. uh-huh very cool yeah it's such an interesting it, it, i mean i just think people it's 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 really heartening to see how many uh kind of really committed and intellectually robust mm-hmm. kind of outlets there are for this kind of thinking and this yeah. kind of constitutional thinking and how it's but it's just such a mile away from how the establishment think of the whole kind of phenomenon of, of Donald Trump and his movement. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they get a little distracted by his unorthodox basket of policy thing. Uh, you know, the, the Reagan policy basket came on, a, took on a kind of mythic status. Yeah. And Trump, uh, Trump's blase puncturing of it. Uh, and I don't mean really of Reagan or Reaganism, just that basket of policies yes. uh, is offending to many people who've made their living off of it for many years and talked a lot about it and invested in it for many years. And his, he's aesthetically off-putting uh, yes. for various reasons. That's yeah. right. That's a huge part of and it. So that that's a big hurdle for some people. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the we'd convinced ourselves that genteel politics is kind of the way it's always been done, whereas... If you anyone acquainted with the, the history of dem, small d democratic politics in America know that it's it's been anything than genteel often. So we're our our historical perspective on that front makes us a little less prone to hyperventilation about about <laughs> Trump. <laughs> I know I think that's right, and I think that start that you know it, it's all style over substance. It's mm. it's oh I can't you believe the way he looks and you know the way he speaks. Oh, you know, it's not like we were used to after all our time in the establishment. It's yeah. just but those are the very things that people love about him. Yeah. That those who support him. Yeah. It's yeah. literally those things that that make it clear that he's on their side mm-hmm. fighting for them rather than being captured by the enemy. Yeah. And then even, you know, I we have a, a interview with Norman Podhoritz coming up the next issue that Charles Kessler did. And I think a lot of people are like Norman. I, I am to a certain extent. You know, we were tepid Trump supporters when in the beginning when we started to see this as a very interesting phenomenon. But as his enemies have gone completely insane, we, <laughs> we grow more and more attached to him in a way because he has all the right enemies or many of the right enemies. And and the, the repeated um, obsessive kind of hysteria over him just – you know, makes some of us grow a little more passionately attached to right. what he does to the, these people, which can be quite amusing. And so looking forward, where do you see that going? I mean, I'd like, love you just to sort of look ahead, I guess, to a second Trump term, if that yeah. happens, what your, your hopes would be there. 
but but more than that you know beyond trump mm -hmm. whether that's in a you know a couple of years or six or so years yeah sure i mean well i think the 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 concerning thing to all republicans and conservatives um should be that uh, it seems to be the posture of the modern democratic party that every republican president is now somehow fundamentally illegitimate i mean it's kind of started with nixon and i don't think it's uh -huh. changed much since and trump has brought it to really a crescendo so the question is what do you do when you have at least the leading edge of the other party not not the rank and file not even the electorate really does not think republicans ever deserve to win or wield power uh, that's an you that's know such a great that's an interesting question and it should it should we should think creatively about what to do about that how to talk about it I think we should try to de-escalate the sense in which we feel like we're in a cold civil war, um, but while at the same time recognizing that a certain, the leading vanguard of the other side thinks that we should never rule again. Mm -hmm. um, so keep, keeping all that in mind, I hope a second um, Trump term, which I think is more likely than not at this point, um, I hope they would, they've done a lot of executive orders on the bureaucratic administrative state. I'd like mm -hmm. to see them pursue some real legislation on it. Mm -hmm. um, they really still have a crisis at the border, which I don't think they'll be able to do too much about, mm -hmm. absent some subsequent electoral victories. Um, so th that thing that he ran on, perhaps more than any other thing, still remains really unresolved and, and really just bad as a matter of policy, as a matter of human yeah. humanitarian crisis that needs to be dealt with. Um, so that's what I would hope from a, a second Trump president. And then, you know, on the, on the trade, landing the plane on on the game of chicken we're playing with China would be excellent, uh, <laughs> especially if we landed in our favor, uh, which I think has been Trump's goal. So, But post-Trump uh, is a great question. I, I don't see too much evidence amongst national Republicans that is in the Capitol, with a few exceptions, mm -hmm. of someone being a proper successor. I would hope a successor would take the lessons of that Trump illuminated about how to run as a populist in a certain a populist constitutionalist if, yeah. I, if I might coin that uh, running as a as a partisan of the middle class in a way take those lessons build upon that electoral coalition and use that that power and that momentum to restore um, rule the rule of law I mean a, a certain um, uh, sanity limited government sanity and and use it as a vehicle to remind people of what self-government in America should look like. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't need to be small government. Small Government will never be small in America again, but it can be limited. So uh, some responsible superintendents of the things that the national government ought to do, uh, put, a, put, put America first in foreign policy, uh, put the large middle class first in trade policy, and, and restore some semblance of real yeah. real borders that will protect the people in this country first and foremost and then talk about who we should add to this okay to this populace so that, that's what i would hope for ryan that's really fascinating i loved every aspect of that and we could have gone off in any of those directions for much longer but um sadly we're out of time but i just want to say a huge thanks and congratulations on everything you're doing at claremont and uh it's great for you to be able to join us today thank thanks. you yeah thank you steve this is great Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.